No. I mean, I don't know about Mexico. TJ. Listeners, welcome back to episode seven of the first season of Takes of Our Lives. I'm Vince Coaching. I'm joined by Steve Wilk. Steve, are you ready for TJ? I know we know already that Marissa is having second thoughts, but what about Steve? I've got a handful of Mexican painkillers and three tequila shots ready to podcast. <laughs> How are you? Oh, well, I'm great, Steve. I'm really good. This episode, and we'll get into it really quickly, uh, it's incredible. It is one of the most foundational and important episodes. I think this one resonates the most. When I just, yeah, this one sticks out in a big, big way. It does. Maybe more so than any other episode of of season one. Yeah, or or of the series. Um, But I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, I've always loved this episode. It's one of my personal favorites, I think, for obvious reasons. And uh, rewatching it was an absolute treat. Uh, So many parts that I there, there's so much going on in the episode it's a very dense episode which is sort of unique uh the, the OC has a lot of sometimes um I wouldn't call it fillery moments but scenes that aren't integral to the series this episode is very different in that regard almost every scene is a heavy hitter for sure there is I feel like the last couple we've done here it's like very uh there's not much happening with the kid well I mean, there's plenty happening but the real fastballs are getting thrown with the adults and the kids are, you know, playing little league, uh, so to speak. So yeah, this, that, but this is not the case, both sides, adults and kids, there's a ton of shit going on that is going to be really fun to talk about. Absolutely. And I think this is, um, well, there, there's so much to talk about. I'm, I'm sort of getting that paralysis by choice, but to start, I think we should, we should point out that this is kind of one of the main moments where the series sort of gets its legs under it and that the A-plot, the kids, rests the interest and the quality back into its spotlight. 100% agree. And a big, big part of that is summer really blossoms. Uh, Last episode was kind of the first glimpse we got of her becoming a non-worthless character. And this is just like like a three course meal of every aspect of her character. And uh, it starts the Seth and summer back and forth. You know, he's no longer just like a doting admirer. Um, She, you know, he kind of can give it as well as he can take it from her. Also, I just want to get this out of the way up top. Summer's stepmom is the Maris of this show. That's for my Fraser stands. (laughs) We'll get that one. But second, second uh, mention of her stepmom who we never get to see on screen. Uh, She buys the, um, the Mexican painkillers that Marissa accidentally, well, definitely not accidentally takes, but maybe takes too much of. Um, We'll definitely get into that later. But yeah, Maris, for my Fraser heads out there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Shout out to Maris. Shout out to Fraser. Um, But before we go through all of our favorite sitcoms of the 90s and give them all shout outs, (laughs) uh, what's the, the episode is about something very simple in its premise There is a tradition where the children of the OC, I guess, go to Tijuana (laughs) to get The young adults, I guess, the teenagers? Yeah, the adolescents. uh, Later than adolescents. You said it right when you said the young adults, the teenagers. Uh, They go to to, to Tijuana before the school year starts. They 
drive down across the border. It's only a couple hours. Uh, not something you would do in 2019, but in 2001, uh, it was... Oh, three. Uh, this is, it, uh, yeah, the yes. we're right in the heart of Bush uh, era presidency. Mexico <laughs> is definitely game. It's all game. Yes. So, so Cross the border at your will. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's a thing, apparently. And uh, how long, Steve, would you say we're meant to believe that this has been a tradition? I've got to believe that it's like goes back years and years. Because for someone like Seth to be... Because the episode starts with Seth trying to convince Ryan that they should go on this trip, lie to uh, Sandy and Kirsten, and go to Tijuana. Uh, because it's just something that the... Like we said before, the high school age people of the OC do. And... It, they never like kind of give the history of that tradition, but you get the sense that it goes back a long ways. Yes. Ryan doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to lie to Sandy. And then after that, he doesn't want to go because he knows Marissa is going to be there. They're on cold terms because uh, Marissa walked in on him getting uh, sexually assaulted by Gabby. <laughs> I laugh, but I shouldn't. It's very yeah. creepy. I take um, back that... that. Full-throated laugh. It was a nervous, a nervous <laughs> laugh. Um, but then uh, he gets convinced to go anyway, because Seth is very persuasive. I guess. I think that happens quickly, because it, it's, the, it's the classic OC opening where it ends with a kind of a funny line when, when Seth's like, don't you mean manana? And then it's like, boom, right into Phantom Planet. But uh, <laughs> a, which, great, a great throwaway. So yeah. good. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it never really is clear to me why Ryan changes his mind there. Um, it's obviously because of Marissa ultimately, but I don't think Seth says or does anything to, you know, change his mind about that. Um, but whatever. I mean, it's, it's inconsequential. They end up going to TJ. I'm going to refer to Tijuana exclusively as TJ from here on out. I think that's, I think that's the scholarly thing to do. Uh, it is if if you're appalled by this abbreviation, listener. Uh, it's what they call it in the show. Yes, please. Yeah, forgive me. Maybe. Yeah, I hope I'm not being um, uh, insensitive. But nevertheless, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I wouldn't think insensitive is the is the thing you'd be guilty of. I just uh, want to know. So you asked how long has this tradition been going on? I want to know how long has the abbreviation TJ for Tijuana been a known thing? Because it's not just Marissa who says it. She's the one who um, who introduces us to the abbreviation. But I think pretty much every kid. Well, I know for for sure Summer does. And uh, I'm trying Marissa to Marissa does. And Marissa definitely does. I think Luke hits us with a TJ at one point. Um, I am wondering, anyone who grew up in Southern California or on the West Coast generally, please write into the show. Let us know if this was ever a real thing in real life or if this is like a Juno with the word wizard type situation where they were trying to make it happen and it, it wasn't like a thing in real life. Diablo Cody took a lot of swings in that movie. Um, with, with Got some hits. The, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. But it had but some misses. Big time. Big time <laughs> hits. Actually, I don't know. What, what do you think? I'm not, not to put you on the spot, but what's the what did Juno give us that's ever that's still lasting? Mm. We can edit this out if we can't think of anything. But there, I mean, just that scene alone with Rain Wilson in the convenience store. I feel like the way that the two of those the two of them are talking to each other is just like a different language and i don't know if mo- if much of that stuck in the uh cultural zeitgeist i would i would say none of it from that scene 
this is a digression that we can uh, <laughs> avert from. <laughs> this is this is not productive to what we're trying to uh, do. But, but <laughs> we'll do some research on that, and I'll do that in the uh, the footnotes of next episode. Sounds good, Steve. Rewatching this episode, I want to go out on a limb, and this is this is perhaps for me the first extremely important take that I've of this, had about of the series. series or just of the series of our of our show. Okay. I think this is the first of relatively few pivotal takes. I say this is if you had to pick one episode of the OC, you pick this episode. Okay. Wow. Let's let's hear your supporting takes to to really solidify that ultimate take. Here's why. Firstly, it is built like a normal OC episode. So it's not an aberration. It follows the formula pretty, pretty closely. Yes, absolutely. However, it is not, uh, it is not sort of prosaic in how it's constructed. It has some really novel moments and some really fresh elements and it's super dense, as we as we talked about. Every scene is is pivotal. It's, every scene's a home run. I I I think I'm gonna give that a soft agree uh, with for every scene. Um, okay, You're, I'm being a little hyperbolic. You're right about that. You're right about that. Uh, the drama though kicks up a notch, and we we launch into what will become a very important arc, which is the Marissa substance abuse issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as you alluded to, this episode ends through a series of devastating revelations. First, Marissa learns her father's getting divorced. Then she catches Luke making out and grinding with Holly. Then Holly reveals that Luke's been sleeping with everyone, every Karen in Orange County. And then uh, Marissa goes off the deep end. She runs. She gets drunk. She has some of... Summer's procured painkillers for her stepmom in her purse, and she takes a big handful. Then uh, she stumbles out into the alleyway and passes out. So, um, and then the the group finds her. Now that is extremely important moment. We have the true kickoff of the Seth Summer shenanigans, which mm. are amazing. Sandy gets a new job. Kirsten kisses Jimmy. Uh, oh my God! So much stuff happens. In a normal episode, that Kirsten Jimmy kiss would have been like th- by far the number one item that we'd have to address. In this episode, it's like number three or four. Yeah, exactly, and and no, none of these things though are why I would say it's the number one episode. I would say it's the number one episode because of how iconic it is. Mm. It is set. It's a classic road trip episode in some Love ways. A road trip. Who doesn't? But it encapsulates to me the cross-section of genuine human moments, privileged adventure, and southern, southwestern U.S. vibe. Like, those three things are so important to the OC being a show. If I was going to show one episode of the OC to someone, not to, like potentially keep them hooked forever because there are some episodes that are maybe more fun there are some episodes that have you know really cool 
short-lived characters that I might want them to see. But if I wanted them to understand what the show was about, this is the episode that I would show them. That's a great take. I, I really like a lot of what you said there. I want to I wanna get another side take on this. Where, do you, where, do, where did you find the Bartometer? What was the, what was the reading on the Richter scale there? Here's another reason why it's so great, but maybe this hurts its emblematic nature a little bit. I thought Marissa killed it in this episode. I thought I she was terrific. I thought she was really, really good. It's so weird how this happens. And I, I, I want to look into the mechanics of it. I don't know even how I would. But how can she go from a flat line last week? Where every scene she's in, even like the one, except for the one in the pool where it was pretty nice, but she was really fumbling and foibling everything. You're this you're week, thinking of I think two episodes ago because last week last episode was the was where she catches Ryan and Gabby. Oh yeah, Yo, you're right. You're right. In, I don't think that. we did a we didn't check in on the Bartometer uh, last episode from my memory. It would have been it would have been holding steady at yeah it was in the average. You know, Hovering around five, we'll say, on a, <laughs> on a 10 scale. This time we're right around nine. She is awesome. She processes so much stuff. She's recounting the thing with Ryan and Gabby. She is in that very like vulnerable post-virginity state, which is kind of weird, but she plays it pretty well. She mm. processes, you know, the Julie and Jimmy's divorce. I mean... And she has fresh eyes on a lot of different scenes. That that scene where she's talking to Jimmy, and I really like the way that that was staged. Like he's sitting in that like empty apartment with like the the window blinds, like it's like a you know noir movie, and she's outside the motel. It, that gets cut short. If you watch that again, she does not get to really like ask questions or like respond to how she's feeling. It's just you see, there's like a scene, like a shot of Ryan overhearing them, and then like the conversation's done, and she comes back in. I found that a little strange. I did too, and I th- I think what's amazing is that there are so few Marissa scenes in the course of this whole series where I'm like, I wish that kept going. I wanted more, mm. and so that really it's it's like. Everyone was on their A game for this episode. It's sort of the Super Bowl of the OC. No Julie, though. I feel like, I mean, I, I don't, not to disagree with your take there, but um, Ju- I can't believe Julie is not, if I'm, unless I'm, my memory serves incorrect, she's not on screen in the entire episode. You are correct, Steve. I found she's that got strange. Zero. She's said to be off. She's, she's said to be with, um, her mother, right? Or her yeah, with Caitlin, with and and her grandparents. Um, so yeah, weird. But I think there's so much going on in the episode. There's really no room for her anyway. True. Um, I I really like your take there. I've got one of my own, and it's tangentially related to what we just spoke about. So I was thinking about Marissa, and I was doing some research online, and I read a little tidbit. I think it's really constructive for how to look at Barton's performance, generally speaking. The two finalists for the role of Marissa were Misha Barton, and do you want to take a guess at who the other one was? Oh my gosh! I guess I should take a, I should take a running leap. Take a stab. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Love the guess, but no. The answer is Olivia Wilde. Oh so- my God. So they thought 
Wild was too strong to play someone as emotionally unstable as Marissa. So they wrote her in as Alex because they really loved her. And I, I can't, this is kind of like one of those moments where the glass shatters and you can never unsee it. Like this, I, that, that reading that made me feel like, okay, so Misha Barton is not necessarily good all the time, but she is really right for that role. Maybe perfect for the role. Because if wow. that, if she's if Olivia Wilde is playing Marissa, I don't I think generally the whole thing doesn't work because she is too strong. She's extre- you know she's she's perfect for the role of Alex. I think maybe they I didn't research this part, but they may have written that character to better fit Olivia Wilde's kind of persona or personality. But that like emotional insecurity that Misha Barton has, or at least like is able to portray on screen, really really works for that character fascinating take steve i i want to agree but i'm a little hesitant not not in the olivia wilde um sort of parallel universe i think that's a good take she is she is a tough customer and i think um it wouldn't really be as believable for her to be as easily blown about as marissa is throughout the show yeah um i'm not sure i'm not sure misha barton's quite perfect because you know we we got to put our take off our rose colored TJ glasses and realize that there are a lot of perfectly good dramatic interesting emotional scenes that have already occurred and that will occur where Barton just sort of like yeah punts and that's, it, that's well the said. punt is even yeah. bad that's a good point because it you're, it's harder it's harder to like support that take that I just gave when you're looking at like a really really shitty Barton performance. When the bartometer bottoms out, um, but nevertheless, I think I guess I guess my point is, yeah, wh- they they made the right decision in not casting Wild, and I think that especially in episodes like this, Misha Barton has a quality that really is works well with that character. You that is a great take. That's an excellent take, Steve. So much of this stuff. I mean, this the the monumental importance of this episode is sort of a part of the rewatch in and of itself understanding for me how it fits into the greater narrative of the OC you know it's sort of a keystone moment and the rest of the season is sort of built atop it uh what else stuck out to you in this episode um I mean the rest of the stuff that I've got is just kind of funny stuff generally I guess um it's a pretty rough episode for Jimmy uh he kind of steps in shit more than once um he cannot get out of his own way (laughs) it starts with uh that weird scene in the hallway when marissa decides that she's gonna not go to tj and stay with her dad and he's like absolutely not like oh i can't i can't take care of both of us you know i found that strange dude Um, hard scene to watch yeah (laughs) just very strange also just i mean just and I, i guess i should back up the general plan to just abandon his family and uh, explain it later when, you know, when she comes home from Mexico was weird. And Kirsten definitely talks him out of that. But so starting with that, that weird interaction with uh, Marissa and then the Kirsten kiss. Let, uh, let, let, let us not forget the cringy line where he's like my swinging new bachelor pad. Uh, even if that was a joke, that was, yeah, that was definitely cringe. What I will say is as a Tate Donovan stan. And yeah, don't let me talk fan, shit about, about Tate. And the, don't hey, let you me don't get away with that. don't come into here yeah. on your own show and talk shit about 
Uh, no, this is very in the way that Jimmy Cooper operates, though. He's a fuck up. He is mm. an idiot, right? Uh, the harshness to Marissa, I thought was pretty well acted, but really out of place. But I will say these harebrained schemes and continually kicking his life downhill, that is textbook Jimmy Cooper. And I I only yearn for when the axe comes down even harder on it because he's a character that I love, but I also love when he gets his just desserts, you know? Yeah, for sure. Are you saying that getting punched at Cotillion wasn't enough to to repay that four million dollar debt? It was a it was a two million dollar punch, <laughs> but he's still carrying a little debt, I think. Right on. So, what about you? What else? Uh, anything else stuck out? <sighs> I mean, I I we said a lot of the stuff that I thought was important. You know, the Bartometer spikes. The B plot shatters into several smaller C and D plots, I would say. I, I think that's interesting. Like, we find that's the resolution of the Jimmy Cooper financial crisis. Now we move on. It evolves into the Jimmy Cooper divorce. It yep. evolves into Jimmy X Kirsten. And now we've got sort of bringing up the rear true C plot, Sandy's new job. Yep. Yeah. I had that. Yeah. I, I wrote introduction to new B plot, but you're right. That is full C. That's C tier. And that's good. I'm glad because it, this dichotomy that was sort of pulling the first six episodes in two directions, I think it always works better in the future when it is the kids are the stars. What's happening? We get little, we get drip fed the cool B plots of the adults. And mm-hmm. that's what I always, I, I love that about the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think that does it for me. I just want to one more time reiterate. What happens in TJ stays in TJ, Steve. And <laughs> Does this mean we have to shit. delete this podcast when we're done recording it? <laughs> yeah, this is for our ears only. Uh, but yeah, I think it's the prototypical episode. And to reward it for being such, we have a brand new segment that we're going to bust out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, indeed. It's called Troping Mechanism. So, listeners... If you don't know what a trope is, I'll give you the the 10,000-foot view. It's basically a reoccurring plot element or sort of uh, evoking idea in media. So a, a classic example maybe being like the stoner friend in a teen drama series. There isn't really one in the OC, but if you'll notice, this type of character comes up again and again and again. That character is a trope. And the OC, being a very referential program, uh, has a lot of tropes in it and celebrates some of them, stumbles into others, and sort of uh, deconstructs still more tropes throughout its run. And uh, I think... Your bit there about uh, the stoner friend made me think of my favorite stoner friend, Breckenmeyer and Clueless. Ooh. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Never apologize for Just... a Clueless reference. Uh, yeah, I, I think tropes are a fundamental part of the show. And now that we got our sea legs under us, there are plenty of tropes to pick from. And I want to hear some of your thoughts, Steve. Okay. Um, I'll kick this off. I love this segment idea. We talked about how there was going to be new developing segments as we continue, you know, as this show develops the the podcast and also as we continue, you know, like the, the OC develops and becomes what it is in season one. Um, I think this is a great idea for a segment and I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, the first, I mean, 
this might not be the most important one, but this was the first one that I thought of. Uh, the Tijuana Donkey Show and Freshman Hazing that hap- that is spoken of, never shown, thankfully, uh, on screen. But <laughs> yeah, gross. In the Crab Shack when uh, uh, Seth is eavesdropping on Luke and Summer and Marissa and the gang. Um, Summer says, "You don't make the fr- you don't make them watch a real donkey show, do you?" And they all break out into laughter and high fiving. Yikes. Vince, do you know what a donkey show is? Yes, and I won't repeat it on the air for this to follow me around into my possible future political <laughs> career. Uh, I have heard about it. I read it on Urban Dictionary a long time ago. Okay. Listeners, for, for those of you who don't know, just Google it. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and then not, delete your If you history. don't know this trope, I guess if you're listening to this pod and you don't know this trope, I don't really know. I, I, I don't know what to tell you're you. You're in the wrong but, spot, yeah, listener. Th- Thank God that Google exists. Um, don't do it on your work computer. Exactly. Anyway, um, but yeah, just the general, just the idea of freshman hazing. I guess we don't have to get into anything as gross as a donkey show, but um, yeah, that that's an element of the Tijuana trip, and uh, that is just like a classic, classic uh, TV show and movie, high school movie trope. It's a device. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. It's also worth noting that the road trip itself is a trope. So this sort of south of ah, the yeah. border escape, it's a it's a take on maybe you might know a vacation episode or a beach episode. Um and that in that's like the architecture for the episode and it's not going to be the first or last OC episode that uses a a pretty tried and true TV trope as its vehicle. This is an extra funny reference and I'm extra clever because they're driving in a vehicle. Uh, to fulfill the trope but uh it also spawns a lot of mini tropes i love the steering wheel fight where oh yeah seth and extremely summer... dangerous terrible job there by summer oh but my god you can't you can't touch the wheel when someone's driving no runs them off the road then that goes right into the hammy crash where they like crash into nothing in Dude, I, I wanted to like make a like a segment just devoted to that like the the weird visual effect of them like <laughs> kind of like vibrating it's clearly like three boom operators just like shaking the car. Um, then we get that classic trope where it takes exactly one overnight to fix the car's axle. So we are conveniently the amount of time. stranded in a, in a roach motel. It's just like a cavalcade of tropes. The motel like couldn't be any grosser. Like, you know, like that from the outside, I would say that motel was probably like, okay, this isn't like maybe my first choice of places to stay. But like the duct tape on like the fold out couch or the fold out bed that Marissa and uh, Ryan sleep on. It's just like, all right, we get it. It's gross. Yeah, they did a good job selling it. And then the bed sleeping contrivances to make the couples pair up and sleep next to each other. It's like the trip and fall and land on each other so you're face to face. It's one of those like, one of those like, God intervenes to make these two people with natural chemistry wind up in bed together even though nothing happens so to speak except for um some really nice spooning that scene of marissa and ryan waking up in the morning and she's kind of like smiling to herself as she wakes up first and you know he's got like his full body pressed against her and like grasping her wrist with his hand yeah so i don't know if nothing happened there just you know some innocent spooning just (laughs) some good natured spooning yeah he he so strong is ryan's protective instinct (laughs) that even while unconscious 
he must shield the woman from the outside world. It's that's the best take so far. But um, <laughs> I want to. Do you have any more on the the motel or anything that happens on the road trip? I want to get to the boom boom. Oh uh, God! I I know the, you're gonna. I, have some I don't good. even. I just wrote this down. Is it the boom? This the club that they go to is called the boom boom. It's called the and boom boom. I would say everything that happens in the boom boom is a trope. Uh, I'm gonna start with the music, the strippers slash shot girls, the. I don't know if this is a trope, but I felt like it, it just felt right. Like the the tiny squirt guns filled with, I'm sure, tequila that they were spraying in everyone's mouths. <laughs> I liked that. That was a little like, oh, oh, they, they yeah. did their research. The name Boom Boom. Um, I don't know. So we start there. I just also want to talk about a couple of things Holly says that really made me like literally laugh out loud. Um so she starts with, you know, they, the, the main, main crew is on their way to find Luke and the gang at the Boom Boom. And uh, little do they know, Luke and Holly and everyone else, that they are coming. Um, so Holly approaches Luke. And I think she's, the first thing she says is, come on, Luke, back that ass up. Which I thought <laughs> was hysterical for a lady to say to a guy. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Doing the old gender bend, I like that. That was good. And then she's, she says... Come on, I love this song. And so I, I had to Google, or Shazam the song, of course. We're, we're skipping soundtrack this episode. But um, so the song that it's like really, really hard, like techno house music. And it's Chemical Brothers out of control. Dude, that made so, me literally one of the few moments where I was so laughing aloud. Funny. Which is, <laughs> I love this song. And it's like a group that is just like primarily known as 90s rave music and that only sounds right in a place like boom boom and the song um, is like it's very many minutes long it's not meant to like are we meant to believe that holly is like throwing this on in her miata as she's that's what i'm saying Go yeah on. like if okay it's 2003 if they're playing like I don't know, like Hot in Here by Nelly. I'm like, okay, yeah, Holly probably loves that song. Or Yeah by Usher and uh, Lil Jon or whoever else was on that. Those would make sense. Oh, my God. Even like Black Eyed Peas, like the the song that they roll up to at the, uh, the Long Beach party from a few episodes back. These are songs of the time that I would believe someone like Holly would listen to. But no, she's really into 90s hardcore rave music. It was it was like so good. It was so so good. It's like they could have done any number of lines to convince Luke to get on the dance floor. They went with right. Yeah, they went with that. I love it. It's so funny. Back that ass up and come on. <laughs> I love this song. So good. Oh, also, another quick note. This is maybe this you could slide this into tropes. But her hair, Holly's hair. She's got the full on Farrah Fawcett like you know feathery hair. Yeah. It's very strange for 2003. I think this is sort of like a meta trope that I want to talk about a little bit. It's just a phenomenon that I get when I'm watching um, TV, and it, it happens a lot with Seinfeld, not to divert too much attention to another program, but it's like, it kind of reminded me how close to the 90s 2003 was. Oh, interesting. Because that is like, that's the sort of hairstyle that might be lingering in like the late 90s, and so it's like, just maybe cool enough to put in on one character in the show but it's it's one of these like leftover artifacts that sort of opened my eyes to just how long ago the show was it's it's like sneakily old what other tropes did you spot in this episode oh there's there's only one more i i really went hard on the road trip but there is like the this is more of a gag than a trope i guess but we don't have to split hairs with the definition summer and seth do this really weird choreographed 
paper exchange, toast push, old married couple to, thing. I wanted to take through that uh, side segment here, listeners. Instead of talk through that, we're going to take through it. <laughs> yeah, but let's what, take it through. <laughs> what, what was your... I, I, yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about that. Because, like, okay, so they have been pretty much at each other's throats the entire trip up until that point. Some are so attempted murder not, by driving the car off the road, yes. Yeah, um... So it is not in line with anything that's happened between them up until that point. And yet I found it strangely like, oh, like it's not believable at all. There's no way on earth I would believe that that would happen between those two people. But it was a little bit like, oh, I guess opposites do attract, which was another trope I had here between uh, Summer and Seth. That is one of the prevailing tropes in the whole show. It's, It's wealth and poverty, Marissa and Ryan. And it's shallow and I guess you would ascribe depth to Seth, even though he's shallow in his own ways. But these sort of like two different worlds colliding romances are what drive the series forward. Even Kirsten and Sandy's the same way. Um, But yeah, I wanted to like it actually because I thought it was ambitious. The show ends up doing this from time to time where they suspend disbelief for like a little bit of a moment most often in the case of seth and summer uh Mm. and do this like little gag unto itself and this is the first of many in that regard but i didn't think it landed i thought it was a little too clumsy like i didn't quite get what's going on it happened so fast and it was he slides like a. it really did happen fast because yeah and well like they go from like seriously hating each other like the last scene we see them is they're arguing over like where she's gonna sleep and there's no indication that they've you know like seen eye to eye at any point and then in the very next scene or the next time they're on they share the screen they're like acting like an old married couple like not talking but like clearly there's like an intimacy of like comfortableness between them yeah not like i said before wholly unbelievable but for me, I don't know. I, I not un not unlikable. Hmm. All right. I I favored the ambition of the scene and that it was trying something um new-ish or at least new to the show, but I didn't dig it. I didn't I didn't think it landed. Okay, fair. Um the only other couple I had, so opposites attract Summer and Seth. That kind of like you said, I thought that was well said that it's kind of that goes throughout the entire uh series with various couplings. Um, but then just the classic, classic combination of pills and alcohol. Mm. You just don't see a trope that's kind of more effective and more used than that one. I guess there's some that are more used, but that was that was my last one. Just to, for the, how is Marissa gonna harm herself? Pills and alcohol. That's all you need. Now I want to break this down a little bit. I want I want to take through this one because I've got maybe what would be an I don't. I hope it's not an insensitive take because it's not meant to be. This is a critique of Hollywood because I would characterize this as a bet hedge, a soft suicide attempt. So it's like when they want to up the ante of self destruction beyond just getting really drunk, but they are are not ready to commit to someone making an attempt on their own life because. We're not sure if we're meant to think that Marissa purposely took too much, didn't know that you were supposed to take 16 painkillers in one sitting (laughs) when you're a 90-pound woman. Uh, Like, 
that's a good point. What's your what's your take on that? Do you think she was trying to kill herself, or do you think she was trying to just like make the pain go away? Ne- so kind of neither. It's a sort of a copy outy answer, and I apologize for that. I I think she didn't want to kill herself. I don't think that was the goal, but I think she wanted to be self destructive. She wanted to self harm. Okay. Sure. Okay. I yeah. I never in all of my rewatches, including the most recent one, I never read that as she's trying to kill herself. Although I I think that if you, one did see it that way, I wouldn't like argue with that because uh, I think it, someone that age probably knows that combination is potentially lethal. Yeah, that's um, where I'm coming from. I think, and she she sort of like stares at the pills in such a way that she's not like, oh, I should just take some of these. That'll be that'll help me forget. I think she shares a look of like a little bit of staring into the abyss when she when she's holding them in her hands. And again, kudos to Misha Barton for a great scene. She she really sells it to me at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. Some great tropes. Steve, yeah, I love I'm that segment. excited about troping mechanisms. Listener, get into it. <clears throat> if you're not into it, then Stay put, because we've got more segments coming right up, including <laughs> the O scene. All right, O scene. As with every other episode, this is the scene that made us go, oh. And uh, I... <laughs> mine was more of you a, wanna, you, oh, this, this week. Yours was? Oh, oh tell me about it then, because mine was... I was a delighted oh. oh. You seem like you were a disappointed oh. I was. I... I um. I was disappointed. I know we just got off tropes, but the uh, kiss shared with the ex. Uh, the I'm talking, of course, of the Kirsten Jimmy kiss. Mm. I I hate this plot development. I think it's out of character. Not for Jimmy. It's out of character. I I always think that Kirsten should like give him the arm bar when he goes in because it is in character for Jimmy to throw himself at Kirsten like a fool and a ham but I'm always surprised and, and to her credit she gets kissed off guard and doesn't do the kiss back blah 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 you can she is appropriately mortified yes. I'll give her that yes. I I don't know if I would say she should like fully you know it's it's so it's because it is a tv show you know like yeah it's hard to because it's just it just kind of has to happen if she like gives him like a forearm shove there, I don't mean you know. I guess it kind of it is essentially does the does the same thing. Um, but okay, sorry, I interrupted. But yeah, you 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 did not like this. I don't like it. I I did remember that it was coming. Uh, it, but it just not even in like a oh that's creepy kind of way. It's just an oh that's just kind of disappointing. The B plot is so good and interesting without it. With that tension, like, ah, the unrealized feelings, it's clear that Kirsten harbors some, it's clear that Jimmy harbors some. It was interesting enough without that moment, so that that made me go, oh, come on, let's, did we have to, did we have to make mm. it so gratuitous? <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna push back a little here. Um, Donovan, Tate Donovan here, he's spiraling. This is like a, a full-on downward spiral for him. He's that I don't even know what this is because he he asks her, do you ever have thoughts about you and Sandy? And it, I mean, if you know, I'm happily married. If anyone asked me that question, I guess you if it's tough, though, because you're thinking about someone in that situation. If, if like a 
someone who had just been divorced or broken up with, I guess in this case, um, a married person. And they're, you know, you're consoling them. You're trying to help, especially as a long-term friend. Um, if, you know, if they ever ask, like, have you ever had, you know, doubts or whatever, however he phrases it. If she's just like, nope, Sandy and I are solid as a rock. It's just <laughs> like, you know, you can't do that in that moment. And I don't so think you, it's even, even honest, not- right? She's, she wants to be honest with her friend, too. And, and after 15 years of marriage or whatever they've been through, it's, um, I mean, closer to 20, I'm sure. It's, you know, predictable. That's, that's not even that, that right. salacious of a response. It'd be weird if they had, if they had never had, if she had never like had thoughts like that. Right. Um, so, th- okay. So he asks her that question and then he asks, he follows that up with, did you ever think about you and me? Now her response to this is a little strange because mm. she says sometimes, or I can't remember exactly what she says, but she, she gives him the indication that it, it hasn't not crossed my mind. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, I don't know. I think that at that when she says that and, he, you know, he's I don't know if it's like a Hail Mary or what he's trying to do, if he thinks that it's actually would actually potentially work. Uh, but I didn't think it was so out of character for him to to try that. I mean, he's like at about as low of a point as someone can get. You're totally right. I think, yeah, the attempt is in character for Jimmy. I just... Maybe I hold Kirsten to too high of a standard. She's sort of my my Richard the Lionheart of the show. Like she's got Sandy's qualities, but also with a sort of rigidity that uh, commands respect. And you know, it just sort of made her a little bit uh, a little bit damselly for my taste. But you know, you make mm. some good points, Steve. I, I I neglected to pay credence to the conversational buildup. Mm. Well, other than her saying, yeah, I, I sometimes think about, you know, if we had ever ended up together. I mean, she's like wholly the victim in the in that exchange. Yes. And yes, she yes. and like I said before, she's like appropriately mortified and leaves immediately. Um, But it was it was definitely an O scene. I guess I I wasn't. I think I, you know, it, it was, I guess I wasn't as disappointed with Jimmy or Kirsten as you were. Maybe, maybe I just love them both too much. But I have one little echo O scene, which was an O with a question mark. Sandy takes the job. This is like a truly relegated C plot. Though I do want to give a quick. Oh, it does. It leads to so much more though, Vince. I, I have watched ahead a little bit, but, um. Yeah, no, it, it leads to much, much, much more drama. And so, you know, that's all well and good, but it's for, for something that's so fundamentally changing as this, like, I'm so surprised that it's in the Tijuana episode. I'm just, the episode, by the way, is called, is called The Escape. Um, and it's a, it's well named for many reasons, obviously. But uh, one of the ways that people are escaping is that, Sandy is trying to escape his financial dependence on Kirsten. Mm. This this segues perfectly into my O scene. Let's hear so it. So if yeah, if you don't mind, I will take the floor here. So first of all, there is just a lot to choose from in this episode. And I feel like I'm risking venturing into self-parody by picking this scene between Kirsten and Sandy in the kitchen. But um <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, TJ. Let's talk about Kirsten and Sandy <laughs> in the kitchen again. Oh, I um, love it. 
Okay. Uh, but you know, for, for real though, it, it is a really, really awesome insight into their relationship. Uh, so it starts with Kirsten asking Sandy. Okay. So, all right. So back up a little bit. Sandy is going to starts the episode. He's, he's going to go meet with a, a private practice law firm. They're trying, they've been wooing him for a while or he's been wooed before by other private practices. He's going to be a, he's going to be in the DA's office for the rest of his life, according to Kirsten and Sandy himself at the beginning of the episode. He takes this meeting, starts thinking about um, the opportunities that he'd be given. So the scene that we're talking about now is when um, Kirsten comes back from helping Jimmy Payne. This is before he kisses her, but uh, it starts with Kirsten asking Sandy about how the interview went. And she slowly starts realizing that he's actually considering taking the position. Um, So Sandy is kind of swayed by the salary and the opportunity to do more pro bono work. Uh, the conversation quickly becomes about the money and the family finances. Okay, so Sandy, the last we've talked about this, but over the last two episodes, he's being questioned about his role for providing for the family and benefiting from his wife's income and position. Um, he thinks that balance is important. And Kirsten is putting up kind of this, uh, I guess she's kind of arguing with him. She's putting up a little bit of a fight and posing it as though she's looking out for the preservation of his morals, being in the DA's office and kind of, you know, helping people who can't help themselves or are not in a position to help themselves. Um, there's an exchange where, you know, she, he says, you have all the money and she responds, you have all the ideals. That's the moment where Sandy realizes that she secretly likes that he's in a subordinate role financially in their marriage. Oh, yeah. But they also, yeah. But that he also has not yet been sacrificed his morals for, you know, any type of monetary gain, like pretty much every other person in Newport. So <clears throat> as long as Sandy still stands for what he believes, uh, at the expense of working as a high-powered attorney, she can still kind of, you know, like, keep her ideals through him, essentially. And he hits her with the awesome line, as long as I haven't sold out, you haven't sold out. Mm. Which is just so, so good. Now, it, it does... You you go to bat for the Kirsten Sandy moments more than, more than even any other fan of the show I've ever met. Um, but this time, you're spot on. I think... What is really illustrated the last few weeks with their dialogue is how in in glaring contrast to much of the dialogue in the show, for better and for worse, uh, they are always one step ahead of one another. They don't have to spell everything out. Like, that, you can see them calculating, bouncing off each other, and anticipating what the other person is saying and why. It's mm. such good dialogue because we we go from like playful teasing to even before Sandy gives it away, Kirsten knows he's considering it. Even before Sandy realizes that, he already knows why Kirsten is being made uncomfortable and is pushing back. Kirsten is happy to call him out on the reasons that he's lived by for so long that he hasn't wanted to take a job like this, but Sandy's ready to take her to task right back about the sort of secret motivations of why she doesn't want him to take a job like this. It's yes. really great dialogue. It's top notch. It is really, really good. And it's an awesome glimpse into their relationship. Yes. You know, it's something that we've observed over the last like six episodes in different ways that Sandy, you know, is he's got strong morals, but he's also like in a subordinate position in their family. Like when he, the very, very first episode when he's driving Ryan to the OC 
And Ryan's like, I thought your didn't your didn't type your your type of lawyer didn't make any money. And he looks at him. He's like, No, but my wife does. As they like pull up to the house, and then the last couple episodes where you get, um, you know, Jimmy and Caleb kind of talking down to Sandy, you know, from benefiting from Kirsten's position, uh, but it really hasn't been explicitly addressed by them, and it gives a lot of depth of their relationship. Totally agree. And kind of causes a small rift. It does. And and will that rift grow? Will it close? We don't know. Uh, the times will tell how long Sandy entertains this new job. Uh, but I thought it was just, it's the cherry on top of an already ice cream packed episode. But it wasn't all good, Steve. Oh, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> I will tell you in a segment we call Takedown Breakdown. So listeners, Takedown Breakdown is our chance to, I don't know, put on our critics' hats. Maybe critics wear glasses. I don't know what article of clothing <laughs> best delineates a critic. Uh, but we're wearing them, and we're having a little fun at the show's expense. Takedowns are things that maybe were unintentionally funny. Breakdowns are things that were maybe unintentionally confusing. And we have a few of each, Steve. I'm going to kick things off. Please. How about the new leaf that Luke turned over? He turned it oh, right back. <laughs> good guy Luke lasted about one episode. He lasted approximately 34 on-screen minutes before he was cheating on Marissa. He didn't explicitly cheat in the episode, but he sure as hell came close. And then it's revealed that he cheated on her for months and months and months with almost everyone. I would say kissing Holly on the dance floor could be considered cheating. I think she catches him red-handed. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, oh, I forget. They're also, I thought they were just dancing really inappropriately, but they're also sharing some smooches. So he, he's fully, he's fully got, he's a full adulterer. And uh, that is, that is uh, not what we call in the business a good bit of long-term character development from Luke. <laughs> wait a minute though he does kind of give ryan a weird like nod when he sees him at the uh the crab shack so you're not you're not gonna <laughs> chalk that up to good character development by luke no i don't know i this is the wheels are being come the wheels are beginning to come off the luke wagon like soon luke's character will devolve into true and utter madness right now it's like Oh, is he maybe not that bad of a guy? Nope, he's the villain again because Julie Cooper wasn't on screen this episode. Oh yeah, good point. He need he those are big shoes to fill. But also, he's also just kind of like reverting back to his old ways. But yeah, that's it's just like okay. We, so we go from literally every single scene. We talked about this last episode, but he's just like a a, a wholly different person and like a totally good guy. And now he switches right back to. Like a piece of shit that's pretty lonesome. <laughs> come totally. on, come on, OC writers. I know that we need to get Marissa to a point where she's really, um, you know, nearing a mental, mental breakdown. But yeah, the Luke just—it's not this episode that's a the problem. About how it's the yeah, previous episode that was the problem. Why did we have that salvation arc for Luke? I guess so that we, it's like somewhat believable that Marissa would sleep with him. Uh huh. Uh huh. But. It is just, he is like the writer's like get out of jail free card for every, like everywhere they need to go. They just like figure, or at least the last, you know, the last handful of episodes, they've just 
look to Luke to see what they can do to to get them there. He is complete plot triage. That's the truth. Uh, here's another one. The tavern brawl that breaks out after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Ryan, we get Ryan punching Luke again. I don't know if this is number three or four uh, thus far into the series. I read a funny thing online. I was doing a little OC research just generally, and there was, I, I got to credit the writer. I think it was on Vulture. They did like a retrospective uh, on like the 10-year anniversary of the OC, or it might have been the 20th. Anyway, no, it hasn't been on for 20 years. Whatever, Whatever the case was, the person writing it like, mentions Ryan as like how how many punches can this kid throw and still be a believable budding architect <laughs> <laughs> that is that was that's a good line apt for this but yeah so he socks Luke in the face and instead of like going directly right after Ryan Luke like kind of like falls into some guy and then turns around and punches that dude and starts a full-on brawl on the dance floor of boom boom it re- boom boom is reduced a, a establishment of repute is cast into the shadows by this masculine fisticuffs. It's it's a you'd hate to see it. Um, I I have another takedown. I I just even though we spoke about it at length, the, I love this song. It's just so preposterous that I have to oh, notice. I have, the Holly. I have to call it out again. I lo- yeah. We kind of that was that was my big one. The Holly Holly says two things that just are so funny. Um, I so we can talk. Yeah. Just just another big ups to that. I want to talk a little bit about the bar that Marissa finds herself in. Yeah. So, the ch- okay, here's another thing. Here we can talk a little bit about this. But the I think Mexico gets the Chino filter. It's the, the first scene in Tijuana where it's very, we're back to the cinema verite feel of the OC. Uh, you know, just where just all real shit happens and, you know, like kind of economically underprivileged places. Um so we get that. And all of Tijuana either takes place in like the hotel room or on one street or in Boom Boom. So we're led to believe that Marissa stumbles out of the hotel, hopped up on painkillers and tequila. Or I guess at this point she hasn't had the tequila, but whatever the case is, she finds herself in this like back alley bar. But meanwhile, the street that the kids are looking for her on is like completely packed. So there's a bar that just has like three locals and like a lonely bartender. Like, you know, she so she finds the only lonely bar amidst like this entire party that's going on outside. Oh, just, just a little little continuity issue there. I'm yeah, I'm not sure the math works out on that. Then the bartender who might as well have a handlebar mustache uh, and as a piano plays, he's like straight out of he's straight out of the 1800s. Yeah, it does really like go back to the old west there for a second. Yeah, we're we're in Dodge City. And then the three like the three Mexican men in the corner looking very just a pack of wolves like they're just leering at this uh this wounded falling Fawn. angel yeah and meanwhile there's like a street like festival going on outside <laughs> preposterous that's very worthy of a takedown steve and then she just jams all the painkillers in her mouth it was like Truly gluttonous. Um, I want to take down the fact that Kirsten is painting Jamie's apart apartment. Why is he? Why is it getting painted anyway? Unclear. <laughs> yeah, it's. Well, yeah, like she. I guess I don't know. I, this that was kind of like a weird like plot hole that we don't. I don't know if we need to really dive into. But uh, he like, gets off the phone 
with somebody who he, he had like reserved this you know apartment to move into that weekend and then kirsten comes and saves the day because she's of course like a real estate magnate so uh, but meanwhile, they still have to like paint the place that either she found for him or he got, however, whatever, however that worked out. But yeah, confusing that like the first thing you do when you move into a new place is paint. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put that high on my list. Uh, and then the last scene of the show, this is not a takedown because I don't necessarily dislike it, but I do want to break it down with you if you're interested. Um, we get Ryan who finds Marissa in a literal back alley dead end, lying on the mm. literal ground. And then carries her as if she's the Madonna, and he is, I don't know who he is in this metaphor, but he's got a Christ-like <laughs> aura about him. And he is like, like, holy moly. Actually, he's the Madonna in this case, and she's Christ. Yes, no, you're, you're right. No, Michelangelo's exactly Pieta. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're right. Just the, the gender flip. The art history major, Steve, again, yes, pays yeah. off for us. Me and Kirsten. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? I kind of want your take on it more than I want to share my own. Okay. Uh, here's my, did you happen to catch what song was playing when that scene happened? Oh no, it's not in my notes, Steve. Okay. So this is a, as Seth says, actually, wow, what, what doubling here? Um, so Seth at the, at the, op- in the opening scene, he makes some remark about that. And that's what they call in comedy, a callback. This is a callback to the pilot when he finds Marissa passed out in front of her house and carries her into the pool house. And that song, you called it out on that episode. I can't remember what it is though, but the same song plays. That Incredible. It's playing when she, when she, and listeners, for those of you who've seen the whole series, this is not the last time that song gets played. Well, that's all I'm saying about that. But anyway, um, so I found it cheesy, but affecting. I think that the, yeah, it's Ryan picking up Marissa and holding her as her, you know, passed out drunk body lies limp uh, is a trope now of this show. Yes, uh, absolutely true. I don't know. I didn't I, I I thought it was an effective way to end the episode. I guess that's all I'll say about it. I didn't particularly like it or dislike it, but it was a nice I mean, I don't want to say nice. That was not, you know, for what happens to Marissa there, but um, a good send off. Hey, I completely agree. That take is essentially my take. I, I think um, pretty evocative, pretty nice moment. Otherwise, I, I don't like Ben McKenzie too much during the episode. I think he kind of by necessity. He's the least interesting. He did not make my tier list. I'm going to give a little uh, preview to that. But he was the most uninteresting thing that happened in this episode. Couldn't agree more. Um, Steve, tier list is a, it's a tempting proposition. But first, we have to answer what I think is going to be a trivial question at this point, but maybe time for some nice summary remarks. Is this foundation or is it filler? I think we gave it away at the top of our show here, but this is fully foundational. This might be the most foundational episode as you, your, your uh, God tier take from the beginning. <laughs> oh, you flatter me, Steve, but thank you. Um, I agree full actually here's this this not a not a uh, a double take situation but chrismica that that's pretty evocative but i i would still pick um the escape here for the the oc episode it's wholly foundational marissa almost dies couldn't agree more it's uh you know it's probably one of the the five most pivotal episodes of the entire 
series, let alone uh, trying to, to trying to rank it as foundational or filler within season one. Um, you got to see it, and it's referenced. Even the episode in a meta way is referenced uh, throughout the show. So you'll need to know what happened in it to understand the mid-season arcs of the show. Wholly agree. Should we take it to the tier list? Let's do it, Steve. I thought this was a pretty hotly contested one. Uh, I I think there was a little crowding near the bottom, as usual, but also a little bit of a jump ball near the top. Should we start with number five for you, Steve? Let's do it. Um, I'm going with Marissa. Uh, This might be a hot take. I think she, I mean, she's probably the one that appears on screen the most. I think she does a pretty good job. I think you said the Bartometer was at nine nearly the whole time. I don't fully agree with that, but I think that nevertheless, she is uh, good to very good in most of it. Uh, Vulnerable as hell, really gets put through the ringer. Um, Yeah, I'm giving Marissa my five spot. Good place for her. Steve, I think and maybe much like the episode itself, our episode has been chocked full of important stuff. But I want to use this opportunity to bring up what, a, another take that I have. Uh, and I expect you to push back on this one. Is this the episode where Marissa becomes the main character of the show? That's a great question. I think that that, that might be when we when we finish up after 27 of these, we might, we could look back and address that. I don't, I, I, I can't project, I can't remember well enough what happens. I mean, I, I remember the big stuff obviously, but, um, I kind of have this, my, my take as much as I don't like the, the result of it is that Ryan remains the main character throughout the, he is the fish out of water. The, everything is through his perspective and whether even if he's the ultimately like the sixth or seventh best character on the show um he is the main character throughout in my opinion i think that'd be interesting to re-examine that once we kind of get through season one but up until i mean she's definitely the main character of this episode i don't know (laughs) if that does anything for you a a fair and unbiased and and well-reasoned response I, I'll say my jury is still out, but it is a take of mine that maybe not that it is the case, but that it might be the case that Marissa is the actual main character of the show. But we we will cross those bridges in the future. For the record, I have Marissa at my number four spot. So uh, I think she had a top two tier quality performance, but momentum matters when it comes to the tier list. And she has been wallowing in the mud a bit. And so uh, she mm. she's ascended. I'm excited to see if, if she keeps up this level of quality for the next few. Uh, but my number five, Steve, which I think, you know, if I'm just trying to gut check and, and do a little metagaming of my own, I think you probably have this character higher. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. My number five is Summer. Oh, I had her at four, as a matter of fact. Ah, so, so flip-flop. Okay, I, and I think, either of, I think either way to arrange these two... Uh, women is is good uh summer was had a really fun episode she's really starting to become a real character i love the trouser at cohen i don't even know what that means but when she (laughs) says that to him at the breakfast table i find that really funny um we get the first uh i think this is becomes like a uh ongoing joke but the rage blackouts she mentions (laughs) yeah it's good and yeah we just get she gets for for the first time so she got like a little 
reprise in the last episode, but we get like kind of the first full 360 degrees of her character. Totally. In this agree. Episode. They only put her in one gratuitous lingerie scene this time, not a bikini. <laughs> uh, but she also hits us with this line, which I love in flaming death cap. It's Ooh. like one guitar. Oh, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk. About, uh, we didn't do soundtrack. I don't know if there was enough to make it a full segment, but Seth listening to Death Cab is very foundational for this show. And it's It'll come up again, Lester. And she hits him with this one. She says, it's like one guitar and a lot of complaining. Got him. Not even the staunch-heartedest Death Cab fan can look down at that appraisal and say she's wrong. Take that, Ben Gibbard. <laughs> Okay, so number three, who's who do you got? My number three, I've got Seth here. Um, mm. I thought he he was funny as always. Um, I like the this is either SpongeBob SquarePants or Jag while he's watching like the the fuzzed out TV. That's clearly a Brody improv line if I've ever heard one. So good. Um, and I <laughs> he stands up to summer. The, for the first time, he, he's she's no longer just like this, you know, this figure uh, to him. He she he realizes that she has faults, and he's going to point them out. I like that. I will I will reserve talking about Seth for a few more minutes. No spoilers. Mm, uh, my number three was Kirsten. Um, okay, I had her at two. So yep, uh, I think I think we did a good job talking about why. Uh, she is in an overcrowded episode, only gets a few scenes, and still manages to let them sing. Uh, also following up several strong performances in a row. Uh, she's been, she's really emerged as a sort of a rock, one of the pillars of the series. And uh, always look forward to seeing her on screen. Well said. Um, I, l- I agree with everything you said. She, she talks some sense into Jimmy. She's appropriately mortified when he kisses her. And w- one thing that we haven't mentioned yet, I like the scene when... After he's taken the job and she knows it, uh, she doesn't tell that. That's so she, Jimmy kisses her. And then the next time we see her on screen, she's like pouring herself a glass of wine and looking pensive as uh, Sandy comes into the room. And she knows that he's already, he says like, if I did take this job and she's like, you've already taken it. Uh, I just like that. She just kind of, that intuition, I thought was good by her. Absolutely. And then they share a very like sad cheers. Very sad. Toast. Yeah, well, the, he he's like, can you believe summer's over? And she's like, yeah, it goes faster and faster every year. And uh, it's kind of a nice, because now we, we are, next episode, we get, we're back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you're... So wait, all right, you had her at three. I had her at two. So who do you have at two? Buckle up, folks. I have Sandy at two. Ooh. Sandy at number two. Wow. Uh, Now, let's talk about Sandy. Even though we talk about him every week, it's also my favorite part of the show every week because I love Sandy that much. Uh, He has to take a little bit of a stock dive in this episode because he is part of, like, at this point, pretty tangential piece of the plot. And uh, to your point, it it, it doesn't go away. It's not a complete one-off. In fact... You know, his whole fundamental career and a big part of who he is is changing. Uh, But what I loved about it, even though he was sort of relegated to the background, he and Rachel, played by Bonnie Somerville, uh, have a hilarious rapport. They are absolutely torching one another with what I would call genuinely good lines. They have great chemistry. I, I really believe that they, like, at one time knew each other and are, you know, 
not anything romantic, although that does kind of come up later. But uh, yeah, just really good, really good chemistry between those two. Totally agree. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to say, so I, I have a feeling you've got a surprise at number one. Is there anything else you want to say about Sandy? Because I, I have him at one and I can uh, chime in here. Chime away, my friend. Okay. Um, so yeah, I like, I really like the stuff between him and Rachel. I really like the line. I was hoping for a free meal. And she says, all you're getting is a really good sales pitch. And he says, sounds delicious. The, okay. This is God tier Peter Gallagher shit here. It's kind of a weird line, but when he when so that scene where Summer's in the driveway and uh you know there he's like oh Summer I didn't realize you like comic books and she, uh, Seth goes she goes for the anime and he's like oh anime uh when she leaves he goes she is hot so, she is hot stuff son and the look in his eye when he says that is you just can't be taught that it's just so fucking good <laughs> it's um, truly it's truly incredible. I like that. I like, um, and then he also says, uh, I tend to be hyperbolic, which reminds me of someone else I know. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> flatter me, Steve. Um, <laughs> flattered with criticism, something that only a narcissist could interpret. Uh, but I I totally agree. Lo- I love Peter Gallagher so much. Have I said that recently? He's the best. Uh, I have Seth at number one. All right. Let's hear it. He pointed out some of the things that made Seth so good. I also think it's a product of his, ever since Cotillion, we have been getting some hot, hot Brody action. Uh, Mm. He is becoming glibber and snarkier, and he has yet to go into the sort of petulant mood that uh, Seth's character can go into. Instead, we have Confidence Cohen and... When yes. he is, first of all, he's telling Summer that she is being a psycho in the car, and that's good. But what's even better is when he gets this, like, sort of wholesomely self-assured notion in the diner where he's like, ah, I think you like me. Like, you're yeah. acting like you don't like me. He doesn't go full bravado. He doesn't go full machismo. He says, I've got, it. I've got a hunch that you actually like me. And mm-hmm. you can't, you can try to deny our chemistry if you want, but here are some logic-based things that are weird for you, Summer, to do, and I'm interpreting that as mutual like. Such a good scene, and I just think in the coming episodes where so much is going to be about Marissa's fall from grace as the golden girl of Orange County and. Ryan, does he fit in at school at Newport? He already went through this in the first three episodes, but now he'll go through it again. There's going to be a lot of heavy shit going on. We need someone to be a beacon of fresh remarks and fresh acting, and Brody is that beacon. Very interesting. Now, do you project that he will remain near the top or at the top of your tier list going forward? Tough. I'm not doing any look aheads, so I'm t- I'm taking this pretty raw, pretty clean. I I think we okay. do hit a a a vein of Brody superiority, but no one is ever safe with Peter Gallagher lurking at your heels. He could any episode that he features prominently in. There's a high likelihood, with one plot line accepted, that he seizes it and becomes like and just stays at the top. He's the king of the jungle. Other characters just get a time at the top if they're really exceptional yeah i think that's true well steve can i get a quick recap 
Mine was, just for everyone at home, Summer, Marissa, Kirsten, Sandy, Seth. Uh, pretty close this week, but or this episode between the two of us. I had Marissa, five, Summer, Seth, Kirsten, Sandy. So Ryan, nowhere to be found in either of our tier lists. Nope. See, sayonara, Ryan. I... He's not coming anywhere close because soon we're going to have big Julie Cooper episodes. Soon we're going to yes. have more Caleb episodes. Soon we're going to have more Anna episodes. We are going to have coming through. A, a feeding frenzy for this top five. And Ryan, he's top 10, maybe. All right, Steve, what, a, what an episode. Any final thoughts? Any last words on the episode? Wow. I don't think so, man. TJ. I think we covered it all. I got T. Yeah, man. What happens in TJ stays in TJ. Um, so, yeah. Holly, she, uh, I'm surprised Holly didn't crack the top five uh, for either one of us this week. She had the two funniest lines of the whole episode. That she did. That she did. Well, maybe there's always next week, Holly. Uh, what's your cliffhanger? What are you looking out for next week, Steve? Uh, well, speaking of Holly, um, now that Marissa is out of the picture, maybe for good, uh, what's next for Luke and Holly? I feel like this love story needs a little more exploration. Uh, and I'm excited to see where the show takes it. How about you? What are you thinking about? Tijuana night two. I mean, they just got there. <laughs> boom, boom, night one. Makes sense. You want to get that out of the way, but I, who knows? Do you, when you're, when you're going on the trip, like uh, if, you, if you and your, your uh, crew, your crew of four were going to Tijuana, would you go hard night one or night two or both? I want to say night two because... You can go soft night one, hard night two, enjoy both nights. If you go hard night one, I don't know how many Valium and tequila hangovers you've fought through. <laughs> Oof. I don't like my chances. That's a great, great point. I just don't think I could like restrain myself on night one enough to uh, save it all for night two. But I think that if you, that's, that's a good plan for those who are capable of it. Yeah, take your Valium and uh, tequila on night two. Well, Steve, I've got one way for us to test that theory, but that is an offline conversation that we have to have. <laughs> Until then, listeners, take it till you make it.